You're listening to Money Makers, talking with leading professional investors about current trends and opportunities in the financial markets. Yes, hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan Davis, and today we're going to be talking about the global investment picture with uh, one of the country's leading institutional investors. Uh, I'm talking to Trevor Greetham, who is head of multi asset uh, investments at Royal London, the insurance company which is where he's responsible for managing or something like 50 billion pounds in assets. That's 50 billion pounds in assets. So it's a big job, uh, Trevor, and uh, you're controlling a lot of people's money. Uh, mm. So why don't we just start by saying, um, how do you go about investing? What's, what's yeah. your kind of framework for which you're investing yeah. such large amounts of money? And uh, how did you come to that kind of position that you now follow? Mm. Well, for me, it's very important to have structure to your investment process. So um, I, I believe very strongly in having a models-based framework where you've tested theories as to what affects different decisions. So the business cycle, the investment clock, we call it, is a big uh, factor in, in our asset allocation between the main asset classes. We test the models over a long period of time. And then in the heat of battle, you can update the models with all the information that you you know generally works. And that gives you a really firm starting point for an investment decision. Uh, We're not believers that you should sort of plug the model straight into the trading desk. I think you need to have that human interaction, experience, and judgment. But it's really great to start, not with a blank piece of paper and all your human biases, but with something you know usually works. And you've been in this business for uh, 25 years. I've Mm. I've known you for most of that time. and Mm. You worked at Merrill Lynch and then at Fidelity before you you took this current job. um, so what, what is your mental framework? What is, what is the model that you're following? I mean, obviously, you're a long-term investor mm. now. You're looking after insurance uh, uh, company money, which is uh, people's pensions and, and so on, for, mm. which may be uh, not drawn down for some many years in the future. Yes. yes. So what is, your, what, what is the sort of mental framework you're taking into that? What model are you following? Well, um, we've got a variety of different things, but the, the, the one that, that is the, the centerpiece, if you like, is the investment clock. And what that does, it says the very big investment trends are all related to the business cycle. And the business cycle is really defined by what's happening with growth and inflation. So a lot of people draw a clock and they say things like early cycle, mid cycle, late cycle, recession, and they they dress it up with all sorts of different investments that do well at different times. And then you say, where are we in the cycle? And they go, well, I'm not really sure. I think we're mid cycle. Could be here or we could be there. I know. Um, (laughs) The the, the thing we've brought to this is, is being able to tell the time on the clock. So we've got indicators for global growth and for inflation that tell you where you're likely to be in that cycle and how that's changing. And therefore, you can start to trade and adjust positions. And what we find is that um, sometimes the cycle does strange things. I mean, sometimes business cycles last a really long time. The current business cycle is lasting a really long time because inflation hasn't showed. So on our clock, we're still early cycle. We've got growth above trend, unemployment rates falling, but inflation's not picking up. It's actually starting to drop again outside the UK. And even in the UK, where Brexit's obviously pushed inflation higher, inflation's likely to drop over the next few months. Um, So we're still quite positive about stocks that do well in that stage of the cycle where you've got strong growth and low or falling inflation. Um, And we haven't seen the signs of the, the, the late cycle yet. Right. So even though the current uh, expansion is a uh, very mm. modest expansion, should we say, has mm. gone on for a long time, uh, or by historical standards, uh, it doesn't mean it has to end any time soon. No, I think it's going to run for at least another couple of years. And, and the sort of risk factors out there to us are things that will cause inflation to rise. And, and so perhaps a bit counterintuitively, we think a gradual managed slowdown in China 
which is what we've seen for the last five or six years, um, is actually quite bullish for global equities because it means commodity prices can't really get ahead of steam. Right. So let's just go back one step there and say you're head of multi-asset uh, investments at uh, Royal London. Uh, what does that actually mean? What assets are you actually mm. looking at? Obviously, you mentioned equities, mm. uh, shares, uh, and you also look at bonds, and presumably you look at uh, uh, commodities. And, and what else is in your uh, universe? How, yes. how do you how do you and how do you break that down? Yeah, well, well in, in terms of the funds that we're managing, um, Royal London's got some of the largest with profits funds because a few years ago they took over um, the co-op insurance uh, and they had a big with profits fund themselves. So there's about twenty billion pounds worth, or a bit more than that, of with profits funds, which are big institutional, pr- predominantly stock and bond portfolios, but with commercial property as well, long-term funds. And they've also got about twenty billion pounds worth of pension assets, which are growing very rapidly. I mean, they've had uh, great success in that market, um, and that's multi-asset in the sense that it also includes commodities and quite a wide range of fixed income investments. So we're very global in our outlook. Uh, most of our assets are sterling denominated, but in terms of the tactical decisions, you have to think global. So in, in terms of the investment clock, going back to that now, uh, you mentioned obviously you think that's positive for equities. Um, so basically you're juggling around what proportions you have in those different asset classes. That's the sort of first order of asset allocation, I, 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 I assume. Mm. And that's driven by your understanding of where we are in in the investment clock. And also, presumably, though, by valuations. And so how do those mm. how do those things mesh together? I mean, if we could be in a period when you think it should be good for equities, but, hey, they're pretty expensive already, so yeah. you know, do we really want to be buying more of those? Well, you've got to be a bit careful with valuation. We, we've, we find that valuation works very well in helping you to select which regional equity market you might want to invest in, for example. Um, we find it's a little bit harder to use in the, 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 the sort of broad equity sense because valuations can be high for, for reasons. So valuations are on the high-ish side at the moment. They're not extortionately high, but they're pretty high. Uh, But interest rates are are close to zero. It's not surprising that valuations are where they are. Um, So I I wouldn't sort of say, uh, you know, you don't draw a line in the sand with equity valuation and say, if it goes above here, I'm selling. You've got to look at the drivers of valuation. And the drivers of valuation are interest rates and the business cycle. That kind of comes back to the investment clock for us. So if you start to see inflation really picking up, wage inflation for example, in America, interest rates rising rapidly, then you're likely to get a bit more cautious on stocks. And then you'd have to decide where where to put that money, whether to put it into cash mm-hmm. or into or some alternatives. That's Fixed right. Fixed income also looks rather expensive at the moment. So yeah, yeah. there aren't that many uh, of immediately obvious uh, alternatives. Um, okay, so so that's what you're doing. What just to give us a, a snapshot, therefore, if I if we you know let's take the uh, the with profits funds, which is obviously long term money, mm-hmm. but um, you know what sort of what would be the breakdown in your asset allocation at the moment? Right? I mean, how much equities do you have, and how much fixed income, and how much? Quality? Well, well the, the with profits funds all vary depending on the the, the, the insurance the book that they're yeah. that they're backing. They tend to have a, a lowish equity content. Um, in the pensions business, again, it varies widely depending on how close you are to your chosen retirement date or when you want to go into a drawdown portfolio. So I think we manage something like two or three hundred different portfolios. Right. Um, they've all got different weightings. I mean, the, the the way to kind of make sense of this is to have the, a very systematic process. So we think in terms of um, strategies and on a scale of minus 10 to plus 10 for each asset class, we're at plus five equities. Right. So that gives you a sense we're overweight. We're not the highest position you, you could possibly get to. Plus 10 would be to. the highest you'd Plus be, 10 yeah. would be the highest you get to. Yeah. Um, but it, depending on the individual portfolio, that will mean something different. Right. Okay. So... Um, 
Okay, well then let's let's go back and think about what what might get uh, inflation going again. Um, as you say, you mentioned wage pressures. Mm. Um, we obviously have a the prospect of interest rate increases in the UK and also yeah. it seems very likely in the US before mm. the end of the year, uh, in a very admittedly in a very kind of slow and orderly fashion. Um, but do you actually think we have reached a, a significant turning point in terms of interest rates and uh, and, and and hence uh, government year bond yields? Yeah. And if so. You know what, what's going to be the direction of travel, and how long, and what what pace is it going to go? Do you think? Well, this will depend on what happens to underlying inflation. At the moment, the central banks are not convincing us that they really need to raise interest rates. So, some of the language you hear is things like, "Well, um, there's something called the reload thesis that uh, you've got to raise interest rates now. So, if there's a problem later, you can cut them again." Right. And that doesn't really make sense to me. Um, so, I think they will be quite gradual. They're not going to raise rates rapidly in order to be able to cut them later on, because raising rates rapidly may even precipitate a recession that wasn't needed. So I think they're very cautious, very gradual. The Bank of England, I think they're looking to reverse the post-Brexit referendum rate cut. I wouldn't be surprised if they just do one rate hike and then they're done for a while, because the politics and the Brexit negotiations are going to remain quite messy. And as I say, inflation's going to start dropping just because the year-on-year base effects are changing. So come the spring, there'll be messy negotiations and lower inflation. I just don't see them pressing ahead. So we're still at a pretty early stage of rate rate moves. But over the next five years or so, they are going up. And that does affect our view on fixed income. So we're pretty cautious on fixed income. And also a bit nervous about what I would describe as the exotic and expensive end of, of fixed income products. So here I'm thinking about things like peer-to-peer lending or aircraft leasing or some of the in- infrastructure bonds. Um, if something's paying you an income of you know six, seven, eight percent nowadays, it's risky. I mean, base it's rates are close to zero. It's also, it's, by definition, it's, it's risky. It's risky because because the risk-free rate for fixed income is paying you maybe one percent. So if something's paying you seven or eight percent, it has to be paying that, that that amount of income to compensate you for the risk of default. And as interest rates rise, I think there will be some some problems. I don't see them in the immediate future, but if inflation does start to pick up and rates have to rise then I think parts of the market that have got pretty hot recently will will come under some pressure. Um, and so we're pretty nervous about the, the idea that people have conflated in their minds about um, pension drawdown and investing in something with a very high yield. Uh, people kind of think once you're in that stage of life where you're starting to take, to take money out of your pension, you've got to invest in things yielding 7% if you want to take a 7% income. That's absolute nonsense. I mean, you, the whole point about the drawdown phase of, of that kind of life cycle is you are gradually going to be taking capital as well as income. That's why you've been saving it all this time. You've yeah, been saving it in order to have a, a, a pot of money you can then draw right. on when, you're, when you've retired. And I think there's a tendency for people to think, I don't want to touch the pot. Maybe I want to hand it on to the next generation. I'll just, just invest in something giving me income. I live off the income. But the point is somebody else will get their hands on your pension pot if there's a default. Yeah. So, so I think you know you've got to keep a kind of steady mind on these sorts of things, and we tend to think diversification across lots of different asset classes makes sense, but don't really reach too much for yield at the moment because when interest rates start to go up, I think there will be some problems there. We don't want to get too far into the into the into the complex issue of uh, of pensions, um, but I guess do you think that the you know the new pension freedoms as they're called, yeah. which are, which. Uh, uh, give you flexibility, more flexibility in how how and when you take your your pension mm. uh, money. Do you think that has been a success, and, it, and, and or, or has it also at the same time created risk for a lot of people who don't quite know what they're doing in, in mm. that new environment? Well, I think it has been a success. I think um, 
being forced to buy an annuity is a bit like being forced to buy a, a government bond at the moment and interest rates you know real interest rates are negative yes. so the government is is being paid to borrow money which is a bit strange and you're guaranteed so, to lose it effectively in effectively in real terms yeah. you're just paying the money away and, and buying an annuity you, your annu the annuity rates are linked to government bond yields and and and, and therefore it's not a great value investment at the moment if you like to buy an annuity. So I think in that sense, having that flexibility to keep invested in a broader range of assets has been a big success. But it does mean to say that through retirement, and retirement itself is a bit of a fuzzy concept these days, through retirement and into retirement, you need to keep advice. You need to be able to reassess your portfolio, perhaps increase the risk. A lot of people, I think, will take too little risk in retirement. If you retire at the age of 65, You've got an average 20 years life expectancy. Um, half of us will live longer than that. It's not a short-term investment. And if you invest in cash, for example, you'll find the pension pot will run dry pretty quickly. You need to keep investing in something to give you growth. But at the same time, you don't want to see early losses because once you're taking money out of a pot, um, people talk about pound cost averaging when you gradually put money in and volatility is your friend. Uh, when you're taking money out, they call it pound cost ravaging. So volatility is <laughs> your enemy. And if you're forced to cash in a lot of your fund after a down year like 2008, you'll find this income sustainability is very badly affected. So you want to avoid things that are going to give you nasty downward shocks. And I think multi-asset diversification and a sensible tactical strategy that will reduce equity exposure when the investment clock and the other indicators say you ought to. Those are the sorts of things people should be really looking for. So it's not enough anymore just to take those old kind of rules of thumb about, you know, your age and, and the percentage you have in fixed income as opposed to you. You've got to be a bit more sophisticated and subtle than that. I think keep, so. Keep yeah. around what's happening outside the window, as it were. Yeah, and, and it may well be that during your kind of retirement journey, so to speak, you know, it may well be that interest rates rise and annuities become attractive. Again, yes. And annuities, if they become a reasonable investment, they're also a fantastic insurance. Yeah, at a certain so, point, in, they, certain, they must become uh, very attractive again. In later retirement, you, know, you may, may look at the pot that's left and, and either you or your advisor may say, well, actually, annuity rates are pretty good now. Why don't we just lock in a guaranteed income? So I don't think you should rule annuities out. The problem, of course, with that is that is that um, you know things have changed so much. The basic parameters in which people are may having to make these have mm. changed so much. You know, annuities used to be you know ten percent, twelve percent, or something within, yeah. within living memory. Yes, and now you're sort of scratching around to get They're five ish. Five, you know? if you're lucky. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's very difficult. People just have to adapt to the fact that the world has changed. And on that on that point, I mean, we mentioned uh, in the context of the investment clock and, and what you're thinking about the the business cycle. Mm. Um, but we also have to deal, don't we, do we not, with another phenomenon, which is the, you know, the, the political risks that are now in the in the system as a result of, uh, some would say, you know, very low interest rates, rising inequality, mm. uh, popular dissatisfaction, uh, which has produced or been a factor anyway in producing Brexit and so on. Mm. Um, how do you factor those into your thinking, and and and, and what is your thinking now about uh, how Brexit might play out and what that might mean for investors? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's lots of different reasons why someone would have voted to leave the EU. But I, I tend to be quite persuaded by the fact that um, after the financial crisis, the the austerity measures, coupled with very low interest rates, which were inflating asset prices, created this this feeling of of, of um, uh, inequality and unfairness. And I think um, some of the some of the vote to leave the EU was really motivated by that that inequality. But we are where we are at the moment, and we're trying to analyse as investors what happens on that sort of particular um, Brexit uh, issue. And, and I think there's a fair chance that uh, 
we either stay in the single market or even Brexit is reversed. Really? And that's the way public mood is starting to shift. Uh, it's hard to see how you get there exactly, but I think there's a fair chance that happens. Let's say, I don't know, it's a 10 or 20% chance that we either stay in the EU or stay in the single market. On the same token, though, I think there's about a 10 to 20% chance we leave with no deal whatsoever, and it's an absolute mess up. Now, if we were to stay in the single market or even stay in the EU, the pound is going to go up about 15% from here. Right. We'll go back to where it was prior to the referendum vote. So if we leave with... Is what I think I so, yeah, why not? Yeah. Um, and quite quickly. If, on the other hand, we leave with no deal, I think there's further downside for the pound. The Bank of England wouldn't be able to raise rates for ages. Uh, the pound could easily go down another 10 or 15%. Right. So as an investor, what kind of edge do we have here? We're talking about a decision made by politicians behind closed doors and it could go one way or the other and we've just just put on the table there a 15 to 30 percent range for where the pound is going to be in a couple of years time it's a big problem and i think the, my, my main sort of uh, message to people uh, particularly if they are lower risk investors with a lower risk appetite maybe they're coming towards a time when they need to take money out of their their, their pension pot or they've got a shorter term investment time horizon, make sure your portfolio's got quite a lot of sterling exposure. If you're spending the money in sterling, make sure that a good 60, 70, 80% of your portfolio is in sterling. And that way you don't have to care too much which way that decision goes. The sort of counterintuitive thing here is that if we were to stay in the single market or the EU and the pound goes up a lot, I think investment portfolios could suffer because all the overseas investments would go down in sterling terms as the pound goes up. Um, that would be a kind of reverse of the, the windfall people got in 2016. Because they're the ones that have done particularly well in, in the wake of sterling having, having that, fallen. That, that's right. On the other hand, you know, there's a reason why we have assets like property in our portfolios. Property would go up if we were to stay in the single market and, and or in the EU. So I think it's good to, to, to make sure you've got that sort of balanced portfolio. But what would be a bit of a problem is if you had a, a, a portfolio of, of stocks and bonds, all of them overseas... And then you're heading into this kind of political risk, and and it could really affect your portfolio in ways you don't really want to see. So basically, there's a, there's a there's a broader band of it, this is this is not a, a an unknown unknown. This is a known unknown that we're dealing with. <laughs> but we it's still difficult enough. There's a big range of outcomes out there. Really, right? really. And uh, we have to we have to deal with that. Um, okay. So and but else, do you think that this? Uh, let's just briefly touch on something that's coming up quite soon in terms of the budget and the government's constraint. Mm. What can the government do to meet these popular pressures for, you know, to help the people who've been left behind a little bit in the, mm. in this mm. whole process? What do you, what are you expecting might happen? Um, well, no specifics for this particular budget, but um, I, th- I think what uh, would have made sense in recent years would would have been more spending on infrastructure. Um, and more more focus on trying to improve the capacity for the economy to grow. Um, Brexit seems to do the opposite. If anything, it's going to create more friction and more red tape and more barriers. Um, and as a result, you know, we're going to end up spending money on things we wouldn't have had to spend money on. We're talking about hiring thousands of civil servants to to sort of open people's bags and check how many cigarettes they've got in them. Um, it's 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 a bit of a bit of an issue at the moment. Um, But broadly speaking, I think um, if you look at other economies around the world, uh, like the US or even like Japan, um, the idea that if we had spent more money after the financial crisis, bond yields would have risen rapidly and interest rates would have gone up, 
it just doesn't stack up. Doesn't doesn't stack up. So in other words, the policy response that was the whole austerity thing might have been a, might have been a bit of a mistake or at least a mistake. I think it was overdone, and I think the initially, especially, uh, I think we should have been spending money on on improving infrastructure. Um, the U.S. did that; they carried on spending money, um, and their economy got back to its previous level pretty quickly. Um, we're we're not doing too badly, but we've 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 just just got ahead above the parapet, and now we have this extra extra issue of Brexit to contend with. Do you have a view? I mean, the most important economy in the world is the American economy. Do you have a view about what's going on over there? I mean, is <laughs> there actually some real? A lot of people got very excited about the the prospects for tax reform and 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 the kind of the Trump reflation trade. Yeah. It's sort of professional jargon. Yeah. Um, Obviously, he's been a bit mired down in the in the Washington swamp, with uh, quite yeah. apart from his personal failings. Um, yeah. <laughs> but do you actually think that, the, that something significant is happening over there? And if so, what's 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 the impact going to be? Well, I think you will get some kind of tax reform, which will um, generally benefit holders of American equities. So corporate taxes will will be cut. Um, if it boosts the U.S. economy significantly. You're talking about an economy with only about a 4% unemployment rate. It was 10% when, when Lehman failed. Um, so the labor markets are getting quite tight. So that um, could well be inflation. Yeah, it may well be that if you, if you give a massive sort of government spending boost to the American economy right now, U.S. interest rates just go up and, and the economy stands still because the central bank doesn't really want to see that growth. On the other hand, the big mystery, uh, what's been missing in action, if you like, is inflation still. Even though unemployment's this low, wage inflation is not growing very much, and I think the the real things to watch here in terms of deciding whether we get towards this late cycle kind of overheating situation um, are China first and foremost. Um, I think China is the most important economy in the world in terms of inflation. So when China decides to sort of open the floodgates as it did temporarily a couple of years ago, suddenly the stock markets go up and commodity prices and inflation go up. At the moment, I think they're reining things back in again. But if China suddenly decides to go for growth, inflation rises, we raise interest rates, it becomes a lot more difficult. Uh, the other thing is, is, is wages and the influences of things like new technology and outsourcing on wage inflation. Um, Google is working diligently at the moment to, to produce driverless trucks. And there are something like 15 million truck drivers in America who can't really ask for a raise at the moment because they're worried about this sort of technological change. It may well be that, that wages just don't rise for a while because of these other changes that are always going on in economies. Uh, in that case, um, a fiscal boost, a government spending boost from the Trump administration may actually result in better growth and, and no inflation. We don't know. The business cycle indicators for America though, are looking pretty strong. Yeah. So it still looks uh, like a pretty pretty robust global expansion with low inflation. And you know you, you can't sort of... Uh, move 50 billion pounds worth of other people's money around on the basis of what you think might happen in two years time you've got to look at the signs and the signs at the moment are saying it's, it's good to stick with equities i mean a couple of years ago we had there was a big sort of scare from the start of 2016 there was a there was a big scare because mm. everybody was worried about what was going to happen in china yeah and there was a big slowdown and and, and the whole commodity thing uh, blew up um and then the Chinese sort of reversed course a little yeah. bit, and then they went back on a sort of growth tack, and, and everything has gone back to that kind of cycle. Um, but that a rerun of that sort of thing is is still perfectly possible, isn't it? Yes. So uh, I think the my my interpretation of the last few years it started in August 2015, where there was quite a big drop in the stock markets worldwide because China suddenly devalued its currency, and people yes. weren't expecting it. 
And there was a lot of talk of, well, they're not telling us why they're doing this. There must be something terrible going on in the domestic economy we don't know about yet. And people have been saying, well, sometimes they should be raising, they should be, uh, you know, uh, revaluing rather than devaluing. Right, right. So, and again, in, in early 2016, there's like a sort of re- sec- second wave of panic about China and yeah. commodity prices were very low. We were talking about sort of Glencore and others facing financial difficulties. You know, it was a price is at 20, 25. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I, I think there's a good old fashioned political cycle at work here. The, the Chinese, although they're not a democracy, they have a five year political cycle. And uh, we're just seeing the party congress coming to an end uh, now. And I think, um, you know, back in 2015, uh, the, the, the authorities were looking at the Chinese economy, which had been slowing since 2012. And commodity prices as a result have been dropping for years. And they suddenly got to the point where they thought they were he- heading towards stall speed where things were going to get quite difficult, maybe unemployment would start to rise. And they're looking ahead for, you know, a year from now, the big party jamboree with all the flags waving. And I think they just opened the floodgates ahead of their political transition Uh, in the way that we used to in this country when the Bank of England wasn't independent. You could pretty much guarantee 18 months before a general election there would be interest rate cuts. It's the same thing. But now we've got through that party congress, I think you're going to see, see tightening coming through again. They started tightening. And I think you'll find China will actually be cooling off in the next year or two. Uh, And that does keep inflation low for the rest of us. And in some ways, it's like the 1990s. You know, when we first met, um, we were were talking about things like the dot-com bubble. The 90s was 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 a decade where we saw quite strong growth, particularly in America. But inflation kept falling because Japan at that time was, was slowing down. And the, the Soviet Union had collapsed and all the supply of commodities was coming on stream from the Soviet Union. And so you had a 10-year fall in commodity prices, which resulted in, an, in the end, a bubble in stock prices. And I see lots of similarities. If China keeps slowing down, if inflation keeps basically staying low, then interest rates will stay low for longer than people think. Um, and equity valuations can go quite a lot higher. So I wouldn't be surprised if we're in sort of 1998 versus 2000 and therefore it's too soon to kind of jump off and say valuations are, are are too high yes i mean i remember that period very well and it was it was remarkable how long uh, how much longer it went than people were expecting at the time uh, yeah. and i think there may well be some similarities now as you mm. say mm. um so where does that leave i mean you mentioned commodities a number of times it's obviously yeah. uh, a lot of people were surprised in a way that you know, when the oil price fell so sharply that actually the, the initial market reaction was negative rather than positive because people think that lower oil prices is better. Yeah, uh, But right. actually, over two years, it's, it's turned out pretty well. But do you think that commodities generally, I mean, they've stabilized, they've obviously risen very strongly from the, from mm. the lows of mm. uh, early last year. But uh, do you think they've stabilized now? And is that where we're going to stay? Or is this China slowing story going to have an impact there, do you think? Well, they've, they, they rose quite rapidly when China first eased policy, and the oil price in particular then has stayed in that 50 to $60 range. It's towards the top of the range at the moment. I mean, it's possible that we'll see a bit of upside in the near term. Um, but I think, I think next year the, the China slowdown story will be more pronounced. And by that time, interest rates will have risen a bit in America. Um, and and uh, you may find actually there's a bit of a cooling off in America as well. So it feels feels like um, you know the I don't think commodities are going to be be surging from here, but I do think they have a very valuable role as a diversifier, a diversifier in, in yeah. portfolios. Because if you were to see a, a very strong China and interest rates rising around the world, uh, you could find that had quite a bad impact on your bond portfolios and also your equity portfolios. But commodities would be would be doing very well. So yeah. again, they're there for a reason that they tend to do well when other asset classes aren't doing well. 
It's much easier, though, for a professional investor to invest in commodities than it is for a, for a private investor. Um, a lot of people obviously mm. now get uh, become interested in uh, exchange-traded funds, ETFs, yes, yes. as a way into the commodity markets, but they're not actually a very good they're not a very good mechanism for doing so, are they? I mean, as a professional, you can invest either directly in commodities mm. or with with a, a, a much better understanding of the instruments that are out there. Well, um, you've got to always be a bit careful with exchange-traded funds because um, there are a very wide variety of them, but, but we actually get quite a lot of our exposure that way. Um, we, we use exchange-traded funds that track the Bloomberg Commodity Index, and that's got 20 different commodities. It, it is in itself a very diversified index, no more volatile typically than equity markets. So you can can get exposure that way. Um, one thing to bear in mind um, about commodities is that uh, there's, there's not just what the commodity prices do. There's also this sort of slightly arcane thing about um, the cost of, of holding the commodities through yeah. futures. And at the moment, it's, it's a, there's a negative cost of holding commodity futures um, or you know a cost of holding commodity futures, which actually help, hurts your return a little bit as well. Yeah. So there are some technicalities to be aware of. I mean, in our multi-asset funds, we typically have about 5% in commodities, so it's just at the margin, and we have a tactical range of 0 to 10. So there are times when you can kind of get about 10% in commodities, there are times right. when you don't want them at all. At the moment, we are in that range at about 4-ish, so a bit below average. And if, if we're right about China and we see signs of China cooling off, we'll, t- we'll reduce it still further. I always like asking this question to professional investors, but... Uh, do you have a view about gold? Because a lot of investors have this kind of totemic faith in gold as, yeah. as the uh, the ultimate protection against inflation. Right. Um, uh, but of course, it's also a volatile commodity. So what? Uh, and most professional investors, I think it's fair to say, uh, don't normally include gold in their portfolios no. because they don't know how to value it. Essentially, it has no income stream. They can't. It doesn't lend itself to. You know, traditional valuation. Uh, no, I, th- I don't think there's a great argument. So, I mean, we do, in the sense that we have commodities in our portfolios, about 10% of the Bloomberg Commodity Index is gold. Yeah. So we do you hold gold. You do have some. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty low. But yeah. Um, the way I look at gold, there are two. Well, there are three main things that influence it. Um, one is the dollar. If you yeah. think the dollar is going to be weak, the gold price tends to go up. We think yeah. the dollar is going to be strong, actually, because we think America will continue being pretty much the loan interest rate hiker. So that's one negative. One yeah. negative. Out of three, yeah. The second thing is that the gold price very much reflects interest rates. So when interest rates are close to zero, you can hold gold and you don't feel you're missing out. Yeah. When interest rates start to rise, you think, well, hang on, I'm not, I'm not getting any interest on my gold. I'm getting 5% in the bank. Yeah. And so as interest so rates rise, that hurts gold. Yeah. Um, and I think interest rates will be gradually rising. So for me, that's the second negative. Yeah. The third one's the systemic risk factor. If you think the whole world is ending, blow up. Yeah. then gold gold becomes quite quite valuable just because it's a, it's a medium of exchange. Um, and, you know, you never say never, but at the moment, looking around the world, uh, the banks are much less leveraged than they used to be. We don't see the same sort of imbalances that we saw in, in sort of 2007-8. Uh, um, there's a lot of debt in China, some concern in China, but I don't, I don't see the same issues. So, so I'm not particularly keen on, on gold, other than the fact that it's there to protect you a little bit at the margin from the things you weren't expecting. So, and then finally, perhaps, Trevor, I can ask you this. If you, um, you've got your clock, and the clock is in a good place at the moment, um, it's much harder to, to go into a kind of negative mode than it is to stay in a positive mode. It, we all know that. It was very easy, you know, with behavioral... Mm. Psychologists have told yeah. us that it's much easier to do some things than other things. Right. Um, and particularly, you know, uh, running other people's money, it's very difficult to say, actually to be brave enough to say, 
actually we think things are about to go wrong. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. very difficult. Um, so, but you, you would you would you say is it is it fair to say that you that moment will come possibly in within two three years time? You, I think it's likely to. I mean, historically, the average business cycle has lasted five years, and we're about eight or nine years into this yeah. one, and we know there are reasons why it's being extended. Uh, but you do get recessions, you do get times when central banks have to sort of cool things off, and you do get unexpected shocks that can hurt an economy. So I, I think it will, will come. There definitely will come a time when you need to be more defensive. That's one of the strengths of tactical asset allocation. You find most good tactical processes add most value, actually, by uh, reducing losses rather than by amplifying yeah. gains. And uh, when I was running the multi-asset funds at Fidelity, we moved underweight equities in November 2007. So you remember there was the, the, the seize up in the summer, yes, and then the markets bounced back to new highs, and we moved underweight on that bounce. We didn't go back overweight again until April, May of 2009. Yeah. Um, and so that's the well, biggest yeah, added value in my career has been by yeah. being bearish and defensive during that bear market. And there was a time at Fidelity, whenever I showed up to an equity manager meeting, somebody would say, oh, here comes the angel of death again, because I was <laughs> pessimistic. Whereas everyone at Royal London thinks I'm, you know, this, always, see the, always see the sunny side of things because the indicators have been positive. And having the analysis having looked at decades of, of data to build the investment clock, mm. and then knowing that when the things that warn you about these bear markets start to happen, this will be sitting on your desk flashing at you saying, remember when you said you'd get negative if this happened? It's yep. just happened. Yeah, that That is a real help. And, uh, you know, we talk about investor psychology, and, and I'm a big fan of the, the Daniel Kahneman thinking where he says you've got two brains effectively, a slow brain that's very analytical and sensible, but can never make its mind up. And then you've got your fast brain that makes quick decisions, often on very erroneous bases, full of bias. You want your slow brain to have done the analysis to build the investment clock, yep. and it's sitting on the desk there flashing red at you saying you've got to sell. So when your fast brain makes a decision, it looks at that and says, well, you know, maybe I should sell a little bit. And it makes you, it keeps you honest, it makes you move in the right direction, even though you might have fallen in love with some story your indicators will be be there as a little kind of a little needle reminding you of what you said you what you said in quieter times yes well that's as you say i mean uh, that's certainly been my experience of of the professional investors i've studied and written books about is that they actually all their superior returns have basically come in bear markets because mm. they've been less exposed to the market than than most of the time so they underperform a little bit at the, at the end of a, of a bull market but they mm. they have still have the ammunition to buy the thing back when it becomes cheap again right and that's that seems to be the secret um but we, i'll ask you one other question i know you you trained as an actuary which uh, you know is a is a um for those who don't really know what actuaries do they their job is to is basically to create long-term models of, yeah. of returns and risk and so on um and i think as an actuary you would probably say you know we've got negative real interest rates almost you know around the world in large parts of the developed world anyway um and that would tend to suggest that you you're going to get over the longer term you're going to get relatively poor rates of return from uh from your investments Mm -hmm. so what that says to me is i mean a lot of people say that and and of course that's kept them out of investing Mm -hmm. the last few years when they should have been in right (laughs) i know it's been Um, very bad but the way that gets corrected is by having a having a bad market and then mm. starting again, is it not? But I mean, real, uh, negative real interest rates is not a, it's not a great backlog for investing for the long term, is it? Um, 
Negative I real interest rates. I, I know. I, I come across that. I mean, a lot of the actuarial consultancies at the moment will tell you something like the long-run return on equities will be 4% or yeah. 35 I just don't buy that. I think yeah. that's not right at all. And if you look through very long periods of history, there have been times when equity markets have done very well, when interest rates have been very low. And there are times when they've done very badly when interest rates have been very high. So the idea that because interest rates are low, equity returns will be lower, I think is is a red herring. Um, I think what you can say about the, the 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 interest rates are that they they are not at equilibrium. So to put it a different way, yes. you'd expect base rates to be round about the same kind of level as the growth in the economy, which is two percent in real terms and two percent inflation. Yeah. So base rates should be about four. Yes, they're not about four because we've had various financial shocks um, and inflation hasn't picked up yet. But I'm not really a believer that base rates will forever stay very low. I think in the long run, they'll get back to that kind of level. Equity markets, I, I think um, we think equity returns on average should be about 8%. At the moment, the main thing I would do to try and have a view on that is not think about where interest rates are, but to think about where valuation is. And valuation's a bit on the expensive side. Yeah. So maybe your five-year return estimate should be 6%, not 8%. But that, that in itself isn't enough tactically to say I'm going into cash. You've got yeah. to look for the signals that the drivers of valuation are going against you. And as I say, see it at the moment, valuations are not so high they can't go higher. Uh, I could quite imagine another late 90s environment. People who lived through that remember quite how crazy it was. Yes. And I was bearish on technology. I wrote the, the Merrill Lynch Fund Manager Survey in March 2000. And I had a special feature on technology, media, and telecom. But that was at the very peak of the, of the whole... It was the very peak the, of the, the, the bubble, bubble yeah. that's right. And I called the report the TMT phenomenon, technology, media, telecoms, TMT. The TMT phenomenon, overvalued, overweighted, over soon. Right. And that was, that was right at the top. And going onto the trading floor of Merrill Lynch to, to talk about the report I'd just written, people would yell at me. They would say things like, <laughs> dinosaur, I guess you use a typewriter, and all this kind of thing. Have you heard of the internet? And it was really aggressive. And we're not there yet. We haven't seen that kind of uh, We haven't crazy got back to it. Media, We've got pockets of it. I mean, Bitcoin is a bit, bit of a sign that there's a lot of money sloshing around, I think. Uh, a lot of money that's not, that not, doesn't care very much about the fact that, you know, on the other side of Bitcoin, you've probably got the, the world's sort of uh, criminals in North Korea. Um, but but um, I, I think on the whole, you haven't got crazy valuations. It's certainly um, not to seize the, the popular imagination yet, in a way. That, no, uh, the, but, you know, the, the so-called fang market. stocks, the sort yeah. of Facebooks and Amazons of the world, you know, they've been doing extremely well. And I think there's a real potential for the technology stocks to see a real sort of blow-off on the upside, so yeah. a big increase in, in value in the next few years. Um, and th the more they go up, the more the likelihood is, as you say, that they'll have to come back down again. Um, so I think it does raise risks, but I don't think we, we're at that stage yet. Well, Trevor, it's been very good talking to you uh, again. And uh, if we are in 1998, well, we look forward to uh, hearing from you in future when you suddenly hit that March 2000. We'll tell you when we turn negative. And, we, <laughs> <laughs> and we've hit the top of the market. Um, that's it for today. I've been talking to uh, Trevor Greetham, the head of multi-asset at uh, Royal London. You have been listening to a Moneymakers podcast in association with Share Radio. You can find us on leading channels such as SoundCloud and YouTube and on the Share Radio website. To find out more, visit www.money-makers.co.